1: Hi, I'm Aria, a volunteer host for the New Book Network's National Security Channel. I'm here to introduce you to groundbreaking authors, and together I hope we can explore books that perhaps don't fit under the traditional national security umbrella. I tend to view these issues as intersectional, and I hope you do as well. A little about me. I work as a counsel in the House Judiciary Committee. As a standard disclaimer, the statements, questions, or opinions shared on this podcast do not reflect those of my employer. I do this for fun to meet brilliant people, and to explore new and interesting books. Now, onto the real reason you're here, the book, and our wonderful author. I am delighted to introduce you to today's guest. Dr. Frank Jones is a professor of security studies at the U.S. Army War College and holds the General George C. Marshall Chair of Military Studies. He served in multiple high-level positions at the Pentagon, specifically within the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, which, including the position of Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations Policy and Support and the Principal Director for Peacekeeping and Humanitarian Assistance. Today, we're going to discuss his latest book, Sam Nunn, Statesman of the Nuclear Age. Frank, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you today?
0: I'm well. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me uh, to be on the podcast with you and to discuss my book, and I look forward to our exchange of uh, ideas and uh, views this afternoon.
1: So, for starters, why don't you tell the li- – well, I've Googled a lot about you. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself um, and how you got to this place and how you got to writing this type of book? Well,
0: sure. I, uh, I, I guess just like you, I have to disc- put a disclaimer out there first also that I – since I still work for the Defense Department, I, my views today are certainly my own and don't represent the position of of the Defense Department of the U.S. government. I got into this area actually after a several years career as a civil servant with the Defense Department, and a few years, approximately 15 years ago, I was asked to take a visiting professorship at the Army War College for a couple of years, which I did. I left the Office of Secretary of Defense and taught for two years, and then after I retired from the Civil Service in 2006, I was asked if I'd be interested in applying for a job full-time as a professor. So that's how I got started in this. And with respect to this particular book, uh, I had just finished my previous book and began looking for another topic and decided I wanted to look at uh, national security policy and those type of issues from a different perspective. I I looked at it from the executive branch, And now I thought it would be worth looking at from the legislative branch. And I was very fortunate that the Dirksen Congressional Center uh, thought that my proposal was worth pursuing, and they funded me with a grant. And from there, I I interacted with uh, Senator Nunn, and that began the process.
1: So I guess the first question would be, you know, why Senator Nunn? there There have been many very compelling and groundbreaking senators and, and representatives. What, what was it about him that you, know, you wanted to focus on him for your book?
0: Well, as you can imagine, my principal interest is in defense policy, national security policy, and foreign policy. And so I, I began to think about who might be a good subject. And I wanted to look at leadership, uh, particularly committee leadership. That's not an area that a lot of people have looked at. And I began to explore that. And I happened to know a former Senate Armed Service Committee member, staff member by the name of Jim Locker. And Jim and I had talked a great deal about this. And we, bash, you know, we hit back, back and forth with it, some names back and forth. And uh, I wanted someone who had been there long enough to have an impact. And so Senator Nunn sent, uh, spent 24 years in the Senate, eight of which he spent as the chair, of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And so I looked at his role there, and I became more and more convinced that he was the right person for me to, to look at because of that tenure, but also the fact that he had been on the committee since his election in 1972 until he retired in 1996. And so he had a, he had a major impact on a lot of defense issues over that period of time.
1: So, and he served not just as chairman of the full committee, but he was also chairman at the subcommittee level as well as a ranking member at the subcommittee level and as at the full committee level, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Yes, correct. You are correct. And so he had a a good insight into how subcommittees worked, understanding of the various issues that the, of the jurisdiction, within the jurisdiction of the armed service committee. And so he was able to use that and he was, he, he rose to be the ranking member with the death of Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, and that's how he came into that role originally.
1: So for, for folks who are listening there, when you are the you know, chairman versus ranking member, that means either majority or minority party. And, of course, as a chairman, you, you generally you control the agenda of the committee. The ranking member, depending on the relationship, may have a say, may not have as much of a say. Uh, it really just depends on the relationship between the two and what are the ratios in the committee in terms of Democrat members and Republican members. Um, So I think before we we dive into the details of the book and about Senator Nunn himself, could you provide a little bit of context on the Senate Armed Services Committee, which he, you know, as you mentioned, he he wonderfully both served and he led it. Because I think, and you make this point in the book, for for those who are often, for those outside of the Hill, they might not realize the impact and the, the role that the Armed Services Committee plays on, frankly, both sides, uh, in both chambers. And they often just kind of view it within, that's the committee that approves budgets or does, uh, you know, just, as the NDAA, but it, it, it's more than that. And if I was hoping you could talk through that a little bit. Sure. So
0: I think if we, if we really begin to look at the Armed Service Committee, and this is probably true of many committees on the Hill, but particularly as it, it, it's really its role in national security, the security of, of the United States. I mean, there are some powers that the, the Congress has by virtue of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, Article One specifically lays out some of those powers that the armed service committees really have of a, a, a say-so. Okay. And I think you'd, you'd have to agree that one of them is the very basic one is, is the legislative or the lawmaking part role that both House and Senate have, and you know, all the committees, standing committees have. So there's that, that role that Article I, Section 8 talks about, that power to make laws. And then, as you know, Article One, Section 8 also talks about the power uh, for common defense and the general welfare of the United States, and part of that is the ability to declare war, uh, also to be able to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, Uh, and I think even importantly, the next clause is to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining uh, the military and the militia, et cetera. They're the armed, as they call it, the land and naval forces. And then there's other powers that also the Constitution mentions. So I think that part of it is the recognition and the prerogatives uh, that the Senate Armed Service Committee and the House Armed Service Committee have. And as you know, part of this is also um, laid out in the rules for both of these committees in both the House and the Senate. And perhaps the House Committee Rules really point to the fact that it's not just, as you pointed out, budgets or equipment or organization, but there is a real exclusive jurisdiction for defense policy. And it says defense, the way the House rules read is defense policy generally. So when you start to think about how the United States interacts in the world, uh, not only are the foreign policy committees, the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House or the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, or the intelligence committees in both chambers, but also the Armed Service Committee, they're really dealing with some of the most crucial issues uh, that face the nation in terms of how we, our relationship in the world. And so it has an important role, not only in how we think about this in terms of the Army and the Navy and the other armed services, but also nuclear weapons, uh, there's a real role there in terms of arms control and the relationship it has with the other committees. So uh, as you were pointing out, this is a, a co- these two committees, the Armed Services Committee on the House and the Senate, both play a, an enormous role in how we understand US military actions, operations and policy in the United States and throughout the world.
1: So understanding that that is the role task and half play but to to focus on task you know cause so much of how a committee works and I, and i i speak for this from from seeing this uh, on on the inside it, it is it is driven by the personality the values the character of the individual in charge and what was it or, or what was it about senator Nunn, or i guess how did he Reimagine, if you will, his the role of the SAC chairman in a way that, that really propelled the committee forward like what, what was it about him that kind of i guess was different than the chairmen who came the chairpersons who came before him? I always think of, for example um, representative Waxman when he led the oversight committee on house side he was he was just an, an incredible force of nature, and what was it about? Senator Nunn, and we, we'll get into his leadership style in a little bit more detail, but just kind of generally speaking.
0: I think generally, uh, and I, I think that our audience would appreciate this, the Armed Services Committee, I, and I speak primarily about the Senate Armed Services Committee, but it's also true in the House as well. It tends to be a bipartisan committee for the most part. There's, there's enough evidence, I guess you could say, to suggest that that is true today, And it's true 30 or 40 or 50 years ago when Senator Nunn was on the committee. So I think that bipartisanship is there. I think that also expertise is expected of members of committees. And he certainly did, if you will, his homework in every case. So that's another part of it. And I think there's also this recognition that he has. And again, this is where context matters. Senator Nunn assumes the chairmanship of the committee in 1987. And we're really at a point where we're still in the Cold War. It is the the Reagan presidency is still in play here. But attitudes are changing in America about the Defense Department and, and its budget, et cetera. And public opinion is changing about the American role in the world. And within two years, the Berlin Wall falls. And then within two years after that, the Soviet Union goes away. And so you have this really inflection point, this changing point in how Senator Nunn sees the world. He reframes the Cold War in his own mind, I think, his own mental map, if you will. And he also is responding to what he sees as the changes in the world around him, the the so-called bipolar world. The, the tension in Soviet-US relations. So I think that's part of it. And uh, I think also that he comes with a, an attitude in 1987, as I point out in the book, where he says, I'm not interested in the grains of sand. I'm really concerned about what's the policy issues. What is the strategy? Where are we going as a nation? And I think that comes right on the heels of the 1996, excuse me, 1986 Coldwater-Nichols Act, where he's beginning to take... The reins of power, if you will, in the committee, as starting to refocus the committee's attentions. You
1: you you talk about how he he knew his homework, or he did his homework, excuse me, and you know, and, and in the book you go into great detail on how he is both a very astute politician and statesman, but you know, a policy wonk at set. And I could say, at, from the staffer standpoint, we love that in members. It it makes it makes. work sometimes a little harder but that much more interesting and but I do think that's a side of Congress that the public doesn't always see they they see them as political creatures and they don't always realize that members are often policy experts in in specific areas my boss is a huge is a history buff and a constitutional law expert for example um you, you you sort of you started to touch on this when putting it into context but what were Senator Nunn's like, primary policy focuses, and then in your conversations with him, I'm curious to hear what were the, the things in, under staff jurisdiction that were his you know, most favorite and least favorite of the policies to cover?
0: Right. So I think that for him, it is his principal interest, and I, I think this is, again, perhaps points to the – I think I'm, I'm responding to your question appropriately – I think there's the element of what, what one scholars call like the two Congresses. There's the Congress where you the, the member has to be attentive to constituents and state or district concerns, but there's also a national interest that has to be examined as well. And I think what Senator Nunn was was he balanced that very well. He certainly, as a member from Georgia, was quite aware of the large number of military installations and the impact that the military and those installations had on local economies, as examples, and jobs, et cetera. So you have to be obviously astute, aware of that, and and understand it. On the other hand, the type of issues that he involved himself in, that he was primarily concerned with, were much larger. Uh, And they were national issues. Uh, They were also international issues. His relationship with leaders from foreign countries, with attendance at North North Atlantic Treaty Organization meetings, etc., his his work on arms control, which was probably one of his most most, passionate interests and continues even today. Uh, Those were national issues that he felt he had to address And make sure that the senatorial role, the role of the Senate as an institution was safeguarded, was was taken care of. I suppose there are, for any member, there are challenges that they prefer not to have to deal with. And some of it is perhaps the fight that goes on over budget and the disagreements that members may have on a committee or subcommittee. Uh, and there were times in looking at his, his long career that I'm sure that he, from our discussions, he sometimes wished he had gotten not caught in between. Uh, and, and and again, I think this is part of the, the question you're also asking is, as you pointed out, there's a majority and minority in terms of the, the split between party membership on the committees. But you know, sometimes you have to work across those the aisle, so to speak, and you have to be able to engage. And sometimes that's not possible on issues. And they become, you hope they don't become rancorous, but they could. Uh, And certainly that, I can think of a couple instances where that occurred in his own career. But I would have to say that uh, this is a person, a member who enjoyed defense issues generally uh, and enjoyed the interaction. And I would say perhaps the budget issues and the fighting over them sometimes were or the, and the, I would say even, and you would know this from your own experience, the, juris, the inter, inter-jurisdictional arguments that occur among members of one committee versus appropriations or committees or some other committee, budget committee, those often were seen as where he had the biggest head-knocking, if you will, of friction was in those relationships, uh, more less within his own committee. Although, as you pointed out, personalities matter here. And because personalities matter, sometimes uh, what a member, even a ranking member can may consider important, will be dismissed by the chair because he or she just feels that that's not something they want to spend political capital on.
1: Yeah. Jur- inter- committee jurisdictional battles are, are never fun because you are essentially fighting your own. Uh, <laughs> so it's much harder. And can get very awkward, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's like the politics within the politics, which actually, it, it, that gets to, to my next point. And, and you, you, you started to touch on this a bit when speaking about his role as a chair and also his role as a senator from Georgia and how those things, they won't always line up, but you try, they try as much as they can. And I've certainly noticed in my, my own observations at work, you know, one of the hardest jobs is being a leader of the committee, whether it's as the chair or the ranking, but especially as a chair is you not only have to balance your, the chair's personal political philosophies and priorities, and then the district or the state's priorities, but then the needs of the members on your side, the need for comedy and fairness, the needs of your caucus, and then of the caucus leadership. And that's why I like to call that it's like little P politics, big P politics, and policy. They all get squished together. But and you kind of describe it. You start talk about it as this transformational and transactional leadership, and how none he managed to 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 be both. Could you walk us through what you think, what you view as? Because I think it it might differ what the outside, what what we would view versus what the senator himself views as the best example of of him being both a transformational and transactional leader? Like, where do you think he was just, like, the most successful and he struck that balance well? In terms you know, of, like, I, a policy I, that was moved forward. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I'm sorry. Um, I, I think that the balance, I'll, I'll defer that part to, to a little bit later because I think that is a it, is a really important question, and it's one that I think we should get to after, as you said, you kind of laid this out and and show some type of evolution of this. So I guess when I'm talking about transactional leadership, what I'm talking about as the, the term implies that I'm talking about that polit- politicians, senators, members of the House, representatives have to think about votes and where they stand on an issue because of where their constituents base stand on it. Whereas you mentioned, the caucus or the conference may stand on an issue and they so they have, where the where they're if they're the same party as the president, where does the president stand or members of the administration stand? And so there are moments. And as I mentioned in the book, there are moments where Senator Nunn is more transactional and he has to be. There are, there are valid reasons why politicians act that way, behave that way. And, and part of it is the fact that if you run for political office and you find that you enjoy and i think that's a, it's a, a a well you know a term that i can use if you enjoy governance then you want to be re-elected and that gets into the aspect of transaction and in 1976 i know this is going way back it seems ancient history but there were two treaties that were very important to to President Carter, Jimmy Carter, a fellow Georgian, uh, at 1979. Those were the Panama Canal treaties. And the people of Georgia were very, very vocal about how they felt about these treaties. They did not want Senator Nunn, because that's a treaty. Treaties are within the jurisdiction of the Senate in terms of the advice and consent responsibilities under the Constitution. They certainly let him know that they wanted him to vote against the treaties. And he came out in favor of the treaties against that. That was an election year. That was 78. That was an election year. And so the bumper sticker that showed up in Georgia was, once we used to have a a canal, now we have none, spelled N-U-N-N. And he got billboards plastered all over telling me, telling him you know, that he was making the wrong decision, et cetera. And he took a lot of, if you will, political heat for this. Um, but it was, again, an election year. And so uh, the Senate leadership, Senator Byrd and others who were involved in this, um, wanted to make sure that he had some way to, to placate, in a sense, or at least tamp down some of this. And so they allowed him to add a reservation to the treaty. Now, as you know, the reservation is a, is a caveat in the treaty. And so they allowed him to do that. Now it turned out that he, he won re-election, handling. But again, it's that idea of not putting a member in a place where they're going to be undermined by a political opponent later on, particularly in, a, in an election year. So I think that's transactional. There, you have to think about what the impact is on your career. Uh, and here he is, he, he's in his first term. I think transformational is that willingness to take and bring together as you were expressing it, members from different parties, different perspectives, different positions on America's role in the world, if you will, and harmonizing, synchronizing that in some way that you can reach an agreement, a cooperation. You can actually collaborate. And I think that probably the the most, the clearest example of that is perhaps the, the legislation that's named for him, the non lugar Act. And when you have legislation, as you know, there are literally hundreds if not thousands of bills that are presented each year. To have legislation passed both in the House and the Senate to be signed by the president, enacted into law, and to have your name on it, to be known as the Non-Luger Act, is, is no small accomplishment. And so what I see as transformational is that, and, and I think Senator Nunn, you were asking how do you sometimes you make missteps, if you will. He made a misstep here. He and Representative Les Aspen, who was the House Armed Service Committee, made a misstep here. But they recovered for it. And here is an example where Senator Nunn realized he had made a mistake in terms of legislative procedure and then thought, how can I correct this and make this happen? Because why? He was interested in ensuring that the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons and fissile material did not get on in the hands of rogue actors or, and this is 19, you know, he's thinking about this in the early 1900s, 1990s, excuse me. He's thinking about this in the early 1990s. He's talking about terrorists. That is amazingly visionary to me. And so I think that's, that's an example where he brings together Richard Lugar a Republican from Indiana. He brings together Jesse Helms, a Republican from North Carolina, and others, Democrats and Republicans. And by the time this legislation gets through, there are 22 sponsors, co-sponsors. That's a sizable number of sponsors to get behind you in the Senate of 100 members. And so I think that's an example where he begins to take these very different views. Luger and Helms are certainly from a different idea, a different, different ideas about American foreign policy but manages to get them to agree to this, find the language and get it in and then attach it as an amendment to some pending legislation in the Senate and work across the aisle through his staff, I might mention, with House Armed Service Committee staff to make sure that Senator, excuse me, that Representative Aspen can also bring it to the House and it gets accepted there as well. So again, I think that is transformation. To
1: build on the on sort of the point of his, his leadership style, right, because he was also, and I think this really bolstered his credibility in the Senate, he was a, a moral authority. He was respected not just because of how well he could posture politically, but because they, people knew at his core he was a good person. He meant what he said. And, you know, that still carries weight um, with, as part of the interpersonal and the relationship building. I'm curious to you, how important do you think that was in terms of his leadership and how he was able to maintain that moral authority without losing sight of his policy agenda, right? Because to your point, like you, those who run for office, they, you would think they, they want to govern, they want to keep governing. But you can often, there's this trap where you you're chasing the perfect and you end up sacrificing what may be a good compromise because it, it doesn't meet that, the, the standard that you, may be, you, you want it to, to, to reach or that your constituents demand of it or the outside groups. And, you know, I'm just it, sort of how did you view, based in your conversations with him and, and what you've, you've read and, and, and all the, the research you did, how was he able to, to keep that balance for, for himself and then sort of make sure that he still projects that authority moving forward? If that makes sense. it's kind of a convoluted no. question. Sorry.
0: No, no, no it's, it, I know.
1: I think there's, part of it
0: is, as you know, characters built young in your life. And I think there were certain, I think his upbringing had something to do with that in terms of his father and his mother and how they set a certain standard of expectation of him and that I lived a certain uh, code, if you will, uh, based upon his his upbringing and some of the activities that he did as a as a child and as an adolescent, um, but I part of it, as you're suggesting, is this willingness to be trusted, to be a person of of reliability and trustworthiness, and and to keep your word, as you said, because so much of this matters, because people are talking, not everything is written down, and so you are really communicating with each other and people are basing sometimes their judgment, their vote even, on what you say and your credibility is at stake and it can be lost very easily. I think probably a glaring example of this, as you said, trying to find this balance is is the incident in President George Herbert Walker Bush's early administration. shortly after he was inaugurated, when he chose Senator John Tower of Texas to be his nominee for the Secretary of Defense. And there was an expectation on the part, I believe, of President Bush, and certainly among press and others, that because Secretary-designate Tower had been a member of the Senate Armed Service Committee, and because he had been chair of that committee, uh, that this would be a, uh, to use perhaps a term that may work out, but it would be a slam dunk. That, his, that because he was a member of the club, if you will, this should not be a problem. And I think at the beginning there was a sense of that. Uh, going back and looking at the hearing record, they were, he was treated, uh, the secretary-designate was treated very deferentially. But then there became to be some discussions about Senator Townsend Tower's behavior with uh, women, uh, about his use of alcohol. And uh, it's important to point out that before he was nominated by President Bush, Senator Nunn and Senator Warner, Republican of Virginia, the ranking member, met and decided that they would lay out, if you will, a code of conduct of what their expectations were of the secretary, the person who would fill that. And in the months after he was, the tower was designated or nominated, there were certain questions about his business dealings, etc. Senator Nunn and I and I think Senator Senator Warner I could speak I think took some also took some political heat for this decided that they felt that the military needed a leader because of its own problems with alcohol and drug abuse needed someone who was of the was impeachable in those in those unimpeachable in those aspects and so it was a Very difficult time, but they chose, if you may recall, Senator Tower did not get approved by Congress. He was rejected as Secretary of Defense. Um, Secretary, excuse me, Senator Nunn took a lot. He was accused of trying to undermine the presidency. He was accused of trying to run the Pentagon from from Capitol Hill. Uh, It got very vicious in terms of op-eds in the newspapers, et cetera. Um, but he believed that this was a moral uh, choice here. This is an ethical issue. Uh, there was a code that he wanted to live by, and he believed others had to do it. And I would add, he himself was, became the victim of, of attacks on him uh, because of his past. And so, again, I think this is where you're trying to balance what's good for the department, in this case, the Department of Defense, the nation, uh, and you are leaving yourself open to your own foils, your own human Failures and that becomes a can become a target for you as well. But I guess again, you're trying to balance, as you said, between what might be politically acceptable and what you believe is the right course of action.
1: Yeah, it does. It does expose you having that type of responsibility in the way that the office of president exposes folks, and and I think that going through the really thinking can- and those battles can get really dirty really quickly. Um, you know, I, I, we see that on, on house side quite frequently, um, to, 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 to take sort of that and to put it into, into present day context. What, how do you view the way he wielded the chair and he wielded the gavel to how the Senate chairs, how they operate now? Do you, Do you think there are certain lessons, Senate, and I'm not commenting on political party or anything like that, just in general, the modern, let's say, the quote, modern day Senate chair, what they could learn from how Nunn ran the committee?
0: Very pertinent point. And as I point out in the book, the Senate that Senator Nunn entered in 1972 after his election and sworn in and left in 1996 are vastly different itself, even that in that 24-year period. I think you can still learn about leadership from Senator Nunn, which is what intrigued me from the beginning and why I wrote the book. There are moments, and again, I'm, I too am not speaking about any particular person. There are moments when the national interest has to be put in front of self-interest or that of your own party or or uh, the, the organizations involved. There are times when bipartisanship is really critical, as you're pointing out. And this is another aspect. And that tradition seems to be holding true in the Armed Services Committee. There seems to be that still that idea of putting the nation before anything else. And then I think the other aspect of it is the expertise, the willingness to do the work the willingness to take on the workload, and to become trusted. And as you know, in a body of the, like the house, where you have 435 members. Not everyone can be an expert in every area. And so others are relying on your expertise. Uh, they're relying on your judgment. They're willing to trust you, provided you've shown that you can be trusted and that you have the expertise and the knowledge and the specialization. So I think there is a, that's what we can learn from him. I think that the Goldwater Nichols Act, which his name does not appear on, but is really part of this whole idea of how you can, a person in leadership, even a ranking member as he was at that time, can help the chair produce legislation that has major impact beyond a year or two or or three years. are still living here it is 1986 that legislation is passed here we are more than 30 years later and that is embedded in the culture if you will of the defense department today so i think those we can learn that there are times when legislation can have a far-reaching ripple effect that extends well beyond the year in which it was enacted
1: do you think that his style would work now in the senate and and maybe it's the exception is that it would still work in the Armed Services Committee because you're right that the, on both sides of the uh, in both chambers the Armed Services Committee is is the bipartisan committee. Just the nature of the subject matter certainly lends to that. Versus you know in other committees where you're dealing with more really hot button issues. Do, do you think even despite the changes that the Senate has taken um, that it would still work? Especially considering the rela- at least in my view the relationship with the Senate. And the executive branch and the posture the Senate takes—it's—it's it's different. It's very different. Um, I'm not sure that that sort of stance against a, um, a con, uh, an appoint someone who's appointed to be SecDef would—I'm not entirely sure it would have—it would go the same way. Now, I was—I was just kind of what your thoughts are.
0: Well, I think that part of the issue is that Senator Nunn, even as chair, showed. Respect and his ranking member, and I think both of those are true, is respect for his colleagues. And by showing that respect, that was reciprocated. And I think that would make him a very viable senator today in terms of that. First of all, he listened. Second of all, he wanted to hear both sides of an argument before he made a decision. That sometimes was held against him as somehow he was doing, a, you know, he's licking his finger and seeing which way the wind was blowing. But no, he wanted to hear the argument on both sides. And that as an attorney, you can appreciate that there's a value in hearing both sides of an argument. You may change your mind. You, there may be new information that you didn't hear. So I think there is there is that element to it. And I think that, that part of it was that willingness to define common ground, and I think that can still be found. And we may see it in the future, without going too far afield, criminal justice may be an issue that this Congress can begin to look at in terms of a bipartisan in both houses being interested in that. And there are others that that may be the case. But yes, I think there are certain topics that, again, public opinion also matters. Does the, is there a care do people care about a topic and I think that's that's important today it's just as it was twenty or thirty years ago
1: do you think that both the the you know the committees Congress as a whole and the public suffers when there is maybe at least an appearance that you don't have members who are substantive experts I think and again I you know my when I consume the news, when, when I see how the Hill is often portrayed, I, I think that point is lost. And I think that there are, that maybe, and I don't know if, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe there are less members who are substantive policy experts. Is there, are you, do you notice that kind of trend just in your research? And, and how do you think that impacts the committees just based on what you saw with how Senator Nunn led?
0: Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of things that are, are at work here. First of all, there is the relationship, as you pointed out, between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And that has been likened sometimes to a pendulum that swings back and forth in terms of that type of relationship. And it certainly had an impact, as it has an impact today, and it has an impact uh, as we're seeing play out today in current events in terms of, of relief for COVID and, and other activities and actions and issues, so I think there is that pendulum that swings back and forth uh, between presidents and and the legislative branch. And what type of role do, pres- do 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 members wish to play in response to that? Do they wish to be deferential or activist? Uh, certainly, in certain areas, threats—external threats or internal threats—whether it's public health issues or 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 foreign policy issues have an impact, presidential success and failure on particular issues has an impact in terms of approval ratings etc. So I think there are those elements that are in play and that may differ but that that's always in the background I think. There are institutional factors if you will. We live in a world or we're in a, a political landscape today where there is increased partisanship polarization, uh, how that works out, as you suggested earlier, in terms of committee relationships or even relations within a committee, how that relates in terms of the bicameral nature of the two chambers that we have in terms of a House and the Senate with the so-called divided government. Those are all part of it. I think there's been enough studies to show that American members of Congress are still driven by certain factors, whether it's values or orders or limitations. Uh, they take. They they tend to gravitate to one of those those areas. But I do think that um, at the heart of your question is what's happened to how many workdays there are in Washington? How many bills are coming up? How how is power distributed within the chambers themselves between the House and the Senate? And I think there's another issue that's, that's in the background and it may come to fore in the future. If you put term limits... On the amount of time a person can serve as a chair or ranking member, do you end up diluting expertise, and that I think is a question that, because of the way the, uh, the Republican Party has chosen to deal with term limits, um, may have an impact. There certainly seems to be evidence that suggests them in the scholarly literature that it has an impact on terms of knowledge and expertise, and I, so I think that's that's in play as well. But I uh, there are. Uh, it's always difficult to kind of judge that, as you said, but I think that those are all factors in whether or not people are as secure and, and as knowledgeable in policy areas of preps as they were 30 years ago. Sorry, that's yeah. a long way yeah. to answer to your question. No, no, that no,
1: makes no, sense. That makes and, sense and, just and just for our listeners, our listeners the, the caucuses, so to either the House or the Senate, the, the Dem caucus and the House has its rules for how long individuals can serve as a chair and ranking and the Republican caucus has its rules and the same thing on House side and currently Republican caucus has term limits for how long they can serve as a ranking or chair and on the Dem side they do not. Um, which, which you know in, in, in this to put that then into the current political landscape right because we have now this influx of Of folks who they want new blood we anti-establishment whatever it is on both sides I'm I'm not putting this apart you you talked about and this is a question I I wanted to ask earlier but I I decided to save for for this segment where you talk about his his tutelage under Senator Stennis and how it shaped Nunn's ascendancy to the chair so to this sort of conversation about expertise, how important then, whether there are term limits or not, but I think especially in a term limit context, how important is it then for members to have that type of figure, that mentor figure, when they come to Congress, especially if they're trying to figure out their place in Congress and what their ambitions are. Because at least from, I did not know much about that. Relationship until until I read the book. How important was that, and how and, and how much did he benefit from it? Because it, at least to 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 my eye, it seemed it seemed incredibly valuable.
0: Yes, I mean he's a, comes to the Senate as a as a young man in his mid thirties, and most of the members of the Democratic members on the committee are men in their sixties or seventies. Uh, so he brings a, you were just talking about f- fresh blood or vitality. He brings a vitality to the committee. He brings new thinking to the committee. This is a, a member that's coming in just as, a, as the Vietnam War is ending. Uh, his, his colleagues are older and they are people who have served either in World War II or are of that cohort. Okay. One of them is, is the former Secretary of the Air Force under Truman, uh, Senator Symington of, of Missouri. So uh, they had been around a while. And so I think part of it is Stennis recognizes, first of all, in a sense, none inherits Richard Russell's chair because Russell dies. And so Russell had been one of the also former chair of the Senate Armed Service Committee, and that was kind of a, a Georgia, a pride of Georgia, that they had someone in that regard. So I think that age, difference in perspective, and the fact that Stennis has some health, is, uh, is medically, has medical problems because he's, he's shot during a robbery in, in front of his house. Um, um, affects his ability to travel and none becomes, as he says, none becomes his eyes and his legs. Um, he's the one that will go to Europe. He was the one will do the actual on the ground, checking the situation. So I think that mentorship is one element is Stennis's is role. The other one is, is Henry Jackson, Snoop Jackson from Washington Democrat who also takes and, and serves as a mentor and is one of those, individuals that really relishes the idea of mentoring younger members, junior members, which, excuse me, which helps. And then I think the third element is um, the fact that Nunn learns a great lesson by putting up an amendment against the Democratic majority leader, Mike Mansfield of Montana, early in his career And Mansfield does not retaliate, Uh, actually applauds him. And Nunn says that he learned a great deal about that, about leadership, that you don't necessarily, just because someone has a different view and and doesn't take your opinion, even if you're a leader, you don't use that as a source of revenge. You respect that person's other position. And so I think those were all elements that really played into how he saw that. Now, That's not to suggest that when he gets to the chairmanship in 1987, he doesn't have his own views, as I said. He does begin to look at policy and strategy as a way. He says, I don't want to get bogged down in the programs. I want to look at this. I want to step back. And he does tell the subcommittee chairs to to take a broader view and gives them that instruction. And he himself, because of the the change, as I mentioned, in context, as as the Cold War winds down, begins to asked the, the executive branch, the Bush administration, George Herbert Walker Bush, to reexamine where America's place is in the world as the, as the Cold War ends. So I think those are all part of his own thinking as, as the evolution of his thinking.
1: Was there anyone on the committee that he then in turn mentored?
0: You know, I think that's a, that's a fascinating question. Uh, yeah, I do think there are a couple of people. I think Senator Levin, certainly valued that, and they became uh, co-sponsors on uh, on pieces of legislation so I think there, there's, a, there's one example that I can think of um, and I would also say to an degree, and I may be mentoring is perhaps the maybe not the the most appropriate term, but I do think that you cultivate your colleagues right, even if you, uh, they're on the other side and that's what he did particularly with um, I think Senator William Cohen of, of Maine, a Democrat, who will later become Secretary of Defense. Uh, they've worked together. They were very different in terms of style and personality. But again, I think they found common ground. And so, again, this is the, the idea of being able to, to talk to both sides and, and find respect and commonality of purpose and of interest.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I think that's why it's important to have a good mix. Young, old, whatever it, within one's own caucus, uh, you know, different backgrounds. I think that that lends itself is that, I, and I think that's really, you know, I, it didn't occur to me. Some, you know, I'm a creature of the house that there were senators who were World War II vets at the time that he served on the committee. That you know that that it it makes so much sense why he then decided to take that to want to step back because the world had changed so much, and he was like the new young kid. On the committee, um, I just have two more questions because I've taken up so much of your time. You know, Senator, he is considered a giant of the Senate, right? And that that is not a moniker that is used lightly. Uh, and you you you, you answered this a little bit earlier, but what do you what in your view do you consider his really the most lasting policy legacy? Um, you talked about one of his most important legislative achievements, but just in terms of broader policy legacy, like, what do you think is his, the defining, when you want people to think about Senator Nunn and his time on the committee?
0: I think there are probably two that come readily to mind that I've mentioned already, but I'm going to mention a third. The two that I previously mentioned were the Nunn-Lugar Act, which dealt with the non-proliferation of, of nuclear weapons and fissile material. And then of course his background, or his name doesn't appear on the Goldwater-Nichols Act, but he was Senator Goldwater's partner, full and full partner on that legislation. But something that often escapes people, and I think it's more relevant today than people realize, is in 1990s, early, early 1990s, he worked with Senator Luger again and Senator uh, Domenici on what became sometimes known as the non luger Domenici Act, but it was dealing with combating terrorism. Uh, This is 1994, 95 timeframe. And that particular act, which deals with defense against weapons of mass terrorism, excuse me, mass destruction, WMD Act, was actually a, a terrorism disaster preparedness program that they put into play with that legislation that became an interagency, by that I mean it was extended beyond the Defense Department to Department of Justice, today would be the Department of Homeland Security, the Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Energy, and that became, here it is 1994, 95 timeframe, he and others, because of what happened in Japan with the uh, biological agent being let loose in the uh, subway in Tokyo, and because of the Olympics in Atlanta, began to consider how terrorism might impact the United States. And what they put into play with that legislation, he and his two co-sponsors, was preparedness. And I have to say, I think, I'm going to say this without any reservation, that when September 11th of 2001 occurred, one of the reasons why the United States, as horrific as that events were, one of the reasons why they state, local, and federal authorities could respond as well as they did to that tra- tragic event It was because of this legislation. And I think that's something to be really, that really doesn't get enough attention when we think about his legacy. But I think it really was important in terms of changing a mentality about what the threat was.
1: Yeah, I I had completely forgotten about that. I even forgot about the I mean, I well, I'm not as young as I used to be. I did forget about the the Tokyo the Tokyo tag, which was it was that was I I don't think was that qualify as a I'm going off on a tangent, but that wasn't a terrorist group as we define them now. It was like a cult, right? That
0: right, Onrikyo. Uh,
1: yeah, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Just, no, I'm going to yeah. go read more about that later now. Uh <laughs> So yeah, no, that, that was very, you're right, in terms of it, despite the damage we and the lives we lost, we were able to coalesce relatively quickly on the ground as needed in, in a way that maybe we would not have before. So, and then my last question, uh, and maybe on a slightly happier note. I'm sure a lot, of your, a lot of what you talked about and, and read about it, uh, and when you went through his papers you know, didn't make it into the book. You can only put so much in. Is there a particular gem or story that you can share um, that maybe didn't make it in the book that you wish did or that's just like a fun little fun side story about Senator Nunn and his time? I would or did you get everything that- in there?
0: I, no, I didn't, no, I I think, there, as, you, as you know, you always have some regrets, right? And that, that because of the way the economics or the financial aspects of publishing, you sometimes have to cut. Um, I don't think there's any, any story that I, that, because he gave me access to himself and to his staff, former staff, they were very helpful. And so they, and Kathy Gwynn, who's his former press secretary, was just magnificent in putting me in contact with everyone, I don't feel there were any stories that were left out. But one of the things is you can appreciate, um, as, as documents become available or declassified, you sometimes discover something that you wish you had known about a couple of years earlier when you were writing the book. And that was one of the cases where I did not know that just before he retired, uh, and I'd only learned this a few months ago, he actually met, sat down with the the Speaker of the Russian Duma, the Russian Legislature in 1996, and having now having access to that document, I realized how the high regard that the, the Soviets and then the Russians had for him personally. And he meets there to talk about the future of Russia and American relations, and he was concerned about what would happen as, as the Cold War had ended and where would Russia go? Would it become more democratic? Would it breach and have a relationship with the West, et cetera? And I, I did, I just found this fascinating about how he was trusted by the Russians as a person who spoke, if you will, honestly and truthfully to them about how he saw the situation. And I, you know, sometimes I, I knew where he was going and his feelings about this in 1994 through 96. But again, there was this was further evidence that they, he was in conversation. He had been co- in conversation with Yeltsin. He had been in conversation with Gorbachev early on um, and, and other Russian leaders. So he was a known commodity. And I think that's interesting to be a known commodity to your quote unquote, your adversary. But even after the Cold War, to would be still someone that, someone that came and wanted to talk to. You. And as you were even going out of office, they still wanted to talk to you. I think that's a, a real, uh, if you will, a real kudo to him about how he was perceived by the Russians.
1: Yeah, and how he conducted himself at large, right, like both uh, both home and abroad. I think I, I would like to just make the point for, for the folks who are listening that you were truly given, like, extraordinary access in terms of to his papers, to the senator himself. He's a very private man, um, and so I think that's, that's really incredible that you were able to, to get that for the book, and it shows. Um, and so I guess if I may ask for, as I'm sure there are a lot of folks who listen, who are budding authors, who, or, or who have thought about writing a book and maybe haven't yet, do you have any, any tips, any advice for folks who, who find this kind of work fascinating, but just, you know, like, where do, where do you begin? Right.
0: Yeah, I think, um, and I've, I've certainly learned over the years as a, as a writer, uh, how and no matter how much you think you know, you always are finding out more that you didn't know. And how good that outlook line looks on the first day doesn't sure maybe not look by the hundredth day. But I think that one of the things is is find a subject, and I know this sounds really banal, but find a subject you're really interested in, because if you're going to spend four or five years. Writing a book and researching it and dealing with people, as I did, because I did interviews, etc. You want to be, you want to make it as enjoyable as you can. There will be moments when you you wonder if you're you're just sane in taking this on, but I think in the in the long run, um, yeah, it's important because you're going to live with this for four or five years if you're writing nonfiction and you want to make sure that it's something you enjoy and that you're finding something new and that it still captivates
1: you. That, that can be applied to so many things in life, I think, taking that approach. Um, well, you know, I thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I think that's it for the podcast. For folks listening, please go and order the book. It's Sam Nunn, Statement, Statesman of the Nuclear Age. And also, please check out Frank's previous publication, which is Blowtorch, Robert Comer, Vietnam, and American Cold War Strategy. Don't forget also to subscribe to the New Books and National Security Podcast channel and to check out all the other great New Book Networks podcasts. Frank, if you want to say bye to our listeners, I think that is it for today.
0: Well, thank you. I will say goodbye to the listeners, but I also want to thank you for giving me this opportunity. It was a fantastic time spending it, and, and uh, I loved your questions. They they really caused me to think about some of the topic you live with something and but. It's always nice to be able to interact with somebody. And thank you very much for this opportunity.
1: Well, folks, in the meantime, please stay safe, keep reading, and we'll talk to you all later. Bye.